Good evening. It is good to see each of you. If you're a guest, uh, again, thank you for being with us. It really does encourage us. If you would be opening your Bibles to Genesis, the fourth chapter, we're going to look at a lot of different verses tonight as we kind of make our way through the scriptures and uh, look forward to the time of studying together. What a wonderful period of worship we've had. Uh, the opportunity to be a part of so far to worship God. Sunday evenings are truly a blessing. And we do miss many of our young people and many of our adults that are helping the young people. I believe there's over 190 campers. And uh, so that means there's way over 200 at camp working and participating in the camp. And we're thankful for them and that opportunity. And as already has been said, let's continue to pray every day this week that great spiritual good uh, would come out of this time that uh, our young people and so many adults are spending time together. Do keep in mind and make your plan to be here Wednesday evening as we continue our Summer Faith series of Family Ties. We're studying the one another passages and Tim Martin just did a tremendous job of kicking off our Summer Faith series last Wednesday evening and Wayne Miller will come in and speak to us this week and we look forward to that. Worship God. That may sound very basic, but it's interesting how difficult it is for us as a human race to keep in mind and to remain faithful literally to the one that we are to worship. I read some words by N.T. Wright this week that I'd like to begin with. If your idea of God, if your idea of the salvation offered in Christ is vague or remote, your idea of worship will be fuzzy and ill-formed. The closer you get to the truth, the clearer becomes the beauty and the more you will find worship welling up within you. That's why theology and worship belongs together. The one isn't just a head trip and the other isn't just an emotion. When Jesus spoke to the woman, the Samaritan woman at the well about worship, you remember he told us that the hour is now and it is to come where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The very idea of truth is that standard of do you know God? You and I simply cannot worship a God that we do not know. And especially as we think about the Almighty God, we cannot offer what is worthy. The very root of the word worship is worthship. We cannot offer to Him what He is worth if we do not know His greatness. If we do not know him as the creator, if we do not know that he is the one who redeems us and gives us the hope of eternal life, if we do not know that he is the only source that can sustain us now and for eternity, but yet on the other hand, if we know that, we can find ourselves when we look into a sunrise being reminded of how powerful he is and then a flood of other knowledgeable thoughts that we have about God. Not only can he create a sunrise, but he can create the, the rising of my eternal life. Whenever we see a newborn babe, we can rejoice in the power of God, but we also can know the power that he has to bring us into life spiritually as newborn babes. 
We could go on and on with illustrations of things that we see every day, but then also biblical truths that we learn. We learn them. And the more we know about the truth of God, the more that worship will well up within us because worship is adoration to God. And to pour out that adoration from a heart that is truly devoted to God is the beauty that comes from a true worshiper that worships who? God, the Father, in spirit and in truth. But as we lead into this lesson today, I want us to pause at something that when I studied this earlier this week, at first I just thought, that's interesting. But then the more I dwelt upon it, the more I realized that's really amazing. What is one reason why worship is so important? I suggest to you first this evening that one reason why worship is so important is because God says it is over and over and over. You realize what we hold in our hand here is a message from God. If you said that you went and had lunch with the President of the United States, you know what my next question would be? What'd you talk about? What did he say? If you told me that you were able to get into a time machine and go back in time and spend some time with Abraham Lincoln, you know what I'd want to know? What did he say? Can you imagine someone telling you briefly about some kind of experience like that and you not having any curiosity as to what they would say? If God was going to sit down with us face to face and spend a few hours with us, what do you think he would say? I believe he would say what he has been saying to us for thousands of years. It would be more of the very same things that we have here. And so tonight, when we open our Bible and we come to Genesis, the fourth chapter, what do we learn about what God feels and believes and teaches about worship? We have this story of Cain and Abel. And in Genesis, the fourth chapter, you notice that each of them in verse three brought an offering to God. But notice you remind, I'm reminding you of what we've studied recently at the end of verse four, where he says, but the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. And remember the word respect there is to gaze upon, to inspect so as to find favor. And so he looked at Abel and he looked at Abel's sacrifice. He gazed upon those, he inspected them. And then he said, you know what? I find favor with them. But he looked at Cain's heart. He looked at his actions in his sacrifice. And he said, you know what? I cannot, in, in, after inspecting you, I cannot find favor with you. I can't find favor with your sacrifice. And then you remember down in verse 7, the Lord's response to him was, if you do well. And, and that could also be translated, if you do righteously or righteousness, would you not be accepted? As we open up the Bible and we open up at the very beginning of human history, what was one of the first things that God said? I want to talk to you about what you offer to me, how you hold me in esteem. Will you allow me to be the Lord and the one that reigns over your life and you submit to me and worship as I've taught? Now, if you know your Bible, you know that there's another time period where God chose the children of Israel as his own special people. And he created a special covenant with them. 
And oftentimes we call this the mosaic dispensation or age or time period. As that time period began, just as right here in Genesis we're reading the beginning of the time period of the patriarchal age, what do you think God is going to say at the very beginning of the Mosaic Age? Turn with me, if you will, to Exodus, the 20th chapter. You're probably going to know this one very well because this was when God called Moses up on the mountain and he gave him two tablets of stone and he wrote commandments on both sides of those tablets and the total was 10 commandments that God gave. And do you remember... It begins in Exodus 20 and 1, and God spoke all these words. In other words, God had a message that he wanted to share with Israel. I want to tell you something, Israel. Okay, God's got a message. What do you want us to know, God? And he says in verse 3, which by the way is the very first of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other gods before me. Number two of the Ten Commandments, verse 4, you shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that's on heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. Why? For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The first two of the Ten Commandments. Don't have any other gods before me. And by the way, if I need to make it even more clear, the second of it, don't even carve any images likened to any gods. And whatever you do, don't bow your knee to them. Don't worship. Don't worship them. Why, God? Because I'm a jealous God. You see, it's the very nature of who God is. That's why Israel would say over and over, our Lord, our God is one God. It's the idea that we cannot say that we are devoted to God, but yet split or share our allegiance. God is not going to tolerate, well, you know what, God, I love you and I worship you, but I also like some of this Eastern religion stuff. Or I like some of this new stuff that we're coming up with today. Or I like a little bit and fill in the blank in any way. And God says, no. He says, as a matter of fact, in this passage, he says, when you do that, you become the people that hate me. One of the first things he says in the Bible is about, I want you to offer worship that's acceptable. One of the first things he says to the children of Israel in the Ten Commandments is, I want you to worship, and I want you to worship only me. But then we go over and we look at Jesus beginning his earthly ministry. And as he began his earthly ministry, look at Matthew, the fourth chapter. Remember, he was tempted. And the devil in verse 8 took him up on the high exceeding mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I'll give you if you will what? Fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, away with you, Satan, for as it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. He quotes probably out of Deuteronomy, the sixth chapter, verse 12 through 15. And what he does is he makes it very clear to Satan, we're going to worship, but I'm only going to worship God because God is the only one that is to be the object of our worship. Now think about it. If he would have believed the offer that Satan was making him, Satan was saying, I will give you all these other kingdoms. In other words, Satan could have 
easily convinced Jesus, the deduction was, now Jesus doesn't have to die on the cross. Because all these worlds, all these kingdoms are going to be given to him. Fortunately, he didn't believe the lies of Satan. And you say, why didn't he fall for the lies of Satan? Well, one reason why he didn't fall for the lies of Satan is because he knew what the truth was. And the truth was, you don't worship anyone but God. No matter how tempting it is, no matter, no matter how it may seem like the right thing to do at that time, you don't do it. So we have the beginning of the patriarchal age. What do you want to teach us, God? I want to teach you about worship. We have the beginning of the Mosaic age. What do you want to teach us, God? I want to teach you about worship. We have the beginning of the New Testament. God, what do you want to teach us? He says, I want to teach you about worship. Let's go ahead and close out the New Testament. Look at Revelation, the fourth chapter. In Revelation, the fourth and fifth chapter, we have a scene of worship. And verse one is really interesting because it tells us that, that God left open the doorway of heaven so that John, the revelator, could see in and he could record these things for us. And what we see is a beautiful scene of worship. And we see in verse 8, the four living creatures, each having six wings like the seraphims back in Isaiah, the sixth chapter, which is another beautiful scene of worship. And notice what <clears throat> they were all saying, holy, 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 Lord, what's Lord mean? Lord means you're the one that reigns in my life. I will submit to you. You'll be the Lord of my life. Lord God, I understand you're not human. You're God, almighty you have all power. You are so much greater than me. The seraphims, the host that was worshiping God in heaven, they knew who God was. Keep in mind, we cannot worship, worship one we do not know how great and awesome he is over and over and over in the scriptures. Worship is tied to identifying the greatness of God. As a matter of fact, when we skip down, look down in verse 10, we notice the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne. And what do they do? They worship him and they cast their crowns before him. But notice what they say in verse 11. You are what? You are worthy. That is always at the heart of true worship. God, you are worthy, O oh Lord, to receive the glory and honor and power. Why? Why is he worthy? You created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Now, not changing the scene of worship, just going over another chapter. Look in the fifth chapter. In the fifth chapter, it's very interesting. We have a scroll that has seven seals on it, and they can't find anyone that is worthy to open it. And finally, there is this lamb that it's obvious this lamb had been slain and brought back to life. Resurrection of a lamb, does that sound familiar? And this lamb is able to open it. And notice what is said in Revelation 5 and 9. And they sang a new song saying, see, this is going to be a song of worship. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation and have made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. Now you realize what we just did was just flipped from the beginning of the Bible and throughout the Bible to the end of the Bible and we skipped hundreds of passages that also identify who God is and scenes of worship and why he is worthy of it. But whether it was the beginning of time or it was the beginning of God dealing with the Israel nation or if it was the beginning of the Christian dispensation or if even if it's showing a glimpse into heaven, 
It's always the fact that God is worthy of our worship. And so when we go to John the fourth chapter and we see that plea, but the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will what? Worship the Father. And notice it's in spirit and truth for the Father seeking such to worship him. God's a spirit and those who what? Worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Why is this so important? Why is it so important that all through the scripture, the emphasis is worship God. For the next few minutes, again, we will not take the time to develop the passages, but I just want you to see in this lesson how easy it is for us to become distracted. And we're on one hand, we say, well, you know, I meant well. I, I was going to worship the Father, but if we're not careful, we'll get on the wrong path and there'll be other things we'll do other than worship the Father. Turn, if you will, in Colossians, the second chapter. The first one I'd like for you to see is that it's real easy for us to get off track and stop worshiping the Father and start practicing self-willed worship. I want to read this to you out of the King James translation. It says it very well. Colossians 2 and verse 22, which all are to perish with the using after the commandments and the doctrines of men. It's a dangerous thing when we start taking God's teachings and we set them aside and we are either twist them to really actually make them men's teachings. And so notice what happens here in 23, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. In other words, that's saying a wisdom of self-willed worship is what's being taught there. And humility and neglecting of the body, not in honoring the satisfying of the flesh. In other words, they'd come up with ways that they said, you know what? If we will do these particular acts, it will show that we are sacrificing so much and that'll be great worship to God. You know, we've heard of monks that would sit in trees for maybe months and if you ask the monk why he's sitting in a tree, he'd be to show his devotion to God. Well, that's interesting. What Can you show me where God said that he wants you to sit in a tree to show his devotion? Oh, no, that's just something we've come up with that would really show sacrifice. It's self-will. You know, you've seen people drag a cross and they say, I'm walking across America. I'm not suggesting to you that that's a sin, Unless you believe that that is what God requires of you to do. Because the problem of that is, that is human-willed worship. God never said, pick up a physical cross and drag it down a sidewalk. God never said, do without this for so many days. Sit in this tree for so many days. Neglect your physical body for so many days. Anytime we start dreaming up things that we say, this is really going to draw me closer to God, just keep in mind, God's already told us what will draw him closer to him. And we can practice self-willed worship or we can practice worshiping the Father in spirit and in truth. Lord I will submit to you and how you want me to worship. Let's see a second thing that's real easy to get off track. They're still in Colossians 2. Go back up to verse 18 and, and notice Colossians 2 and 18. Let no one cheat you of your reward. Take delight in false humility and worship of what? Worship of angels intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to what? The head. 
You mean you're going to leave the head, Jesus Christ, and you're going to start worshiping angels? And before you say, who would do that? Listen, one of the greatest men we read of in the scriptures got so emotionally tied up in a moment. It's John the Revelator. Wherever he saw this scene of worship and this angel was explaining to him, and I want to put these words in, and the next thing you knew. In other words, it's almost like with no reason, the apostle John just falls down and starts worshiping him. And we have some very clear words. Look in Revelation, the 19th chapter, another great chapter of worship. And notice what happens here. He said to me, so this is John recording this. He said this to me, right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, see that you do not do that. I am your fellow servant and your brethren who have the testimony of Jesus. Now here is a two word sentence. The answer is, Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is a spirit of prophecy. I would suggest to you that the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John had the ability to be distracted or caught up so much in a moment that he would find himself worshiping what he should not worship. It's probably possible for everybody here. We must be careful and we must constantly remind ourselves that everything in worship is about God. How many times do we turn worship around to where instead of God being the only one in the audience, we start thinking we're the one in the audience? Listen, if everyone here is practicing true worship, there's only one in the audience, it's God, and everybody here is a participant pouring out their adoration to God. That's the only reason I do not like the word auditorium for the word to describe the room that we worship in. By definition, auditorium means lecture hall. It's a place that you go to hear. And the truth is, when we go to worship, it's the place that we go to give. It's the place that we have come together to give our worship to God. Let's see another distraction that's very easy. In Matthew, the fourth chapter, we've already seen this, so I'll just mention it quickly, and that is, it is possible for us to worship Satan not only is it possible, it's what he wants. And so you can imagine he's constantly trying to distract us and to, and to deceive us into doing that. Another thing that is possible to worship, and that is false gods. In Jeremiah the 10th chapter and verse 3, listen how foolish he makes idolatry sound. For the customs of the people are futile. One cuts a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with an axe. They decorate it with silver and gold. They fasten it with nails and hammers so that it will not topple. They are upright like a palm tree. They cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot go by themselves. Do not be afraid of them for they cannot do evil nor can they do any good. Do you see? He says, I want to talk to you about a, a cultural, a custom thing that you're seeing and I want to show you how ridiculous it is. You're telling me that you're going to worship this image right here? Do I need to remind you how you created this image? You went to the forest and picked out a tree. You took a common axe and you cut it down. You decorated it and you had to nail some additional supports to it just to get it to not topple over. And then if you want your God to go somewhere else, you have to pick your God up and you have to move your God. And by the way, if you want your God to say something, you'll have to say it for your God because your God can't say a word. And his summary of this in verse 15 is, they are futile, 
a work of errors. In the time of their punishment, they shall perish. And then we say, well, how does this compare to worshiping the true God? Remember how we see over and over in Scripture, if you worship the true God, what do you have to do? You have to know who He is. So look at verse 10. Here's how He offsets this. Go back to verse 10. But the Lord, okay, so He's the one that reigns over us. He's Lord, is what? The true God. He's not just another false God or an idol. He is the living God. Now that's important in this passage because He's not an idol that is of, of no life. And He is the everlasting in other words, man didn't make him. He's been forever king. He is authoritative. He doesn't have to have you to speak for him or to move him about. He reigns and has always reigned and will ever reign. In Romans, the first chapter, verse 21, we see individuals that knew God, but then by 23, they changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. Fifth, I'd like to share with you another thing that's easy to do, and that is to worship false gods such as power. It's interesting how Habakkuk was seeing righteous people suffer so much. And so he takes this up with God, and he asks why God is allowing this. And a part of, of this actually becomes prophetic, that God is actually going to raise up the Babylonians to take care of the problem that Judah has in falling away. And so what he does in verse 14 is speaks what must be a form of prophecy when he says, why do you make them like fish and sea of the sea, like creeping things that have no ruler over them? And then when he says they, he's talking about the enemy, most likely Babylon. They take up all of them with a hook. They catch them in their net. They gather them in their drag net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad. Now, you say, what is happening here? He's showing the power that they had to go in and conquer a nation and bring back the prisoners of war. Here's an artistic rendering that is taken from some of their drawings and some of their descriptions where the Assyrians did this and the Babylonians did this and probably other nations as well. They would go in and they would bring back their prisoners of war by hooking them into a long chain and they would literally, like a fish, put a hook in their, either their lip or in their nose and they would lead them about. And so this is being spoken of here. Now, we're saying that to get to verse 16. Look at the first chapter in verse 16. Therefore, they, still talking about this enemy, they sacrifice to their what? Net. And they burn incense to their dragnet because by them their share is sumptuous and their food is plentiful. Do you realize what is happening here? What is happening here is the previous verses says, the enemy treats us like fish. And they take their nets and they take their dragnets and they just conquer us. And then when they get back home, you know what they worship? They make offerings to their net. They, they burn incense to their dragnet. Now, I don't know if they were literally doing that. I assume not. But what he's saying is, they get back home, and you know what they worship? They worship their power. Do you realize when people worship power, it is that power that drives them, controls them. Just like when people worship God, Almighty, it is His power and His strength that drives them. 
Let's look at one more passage here. Look at Deuteronomy the fourth chapter in verse 15. I want to show you this one because it may be unique enough that there may be some of you say, you know, I have never noticed that. And we could look at a few more, but we're going to quit after this one. But look with me at Deuteronomy the fourth chapter in verse 15. Also what God doesn't want us to worship is God does not want us to worship him through images. Look in Deuteronomy 4 and 15. God is, or Moses is speaking here and he's reminding them of God giving the Ten Commandments. But notice how he says it here. Take careful heed to yourself. For you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire. Lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of a male or female, and skipping down the other verses, any animal, uh, any winged bird, anything that creeps on the ground, any fish. Do you see what he's saying there? Moses is warning them about making images, but he takes them back even to God giving them the Ten Commandments, and he says, you were there, or your parents were there. You've heard all about it. What form did you see of God when God gave the Ten Commandments? Well, now that you... Now that you ask that question, and I think about it, we never saw an image of God. He says, that's right. You know why you never saw an image of God? Because God didn't want you to catch a glimpse of him and then later on in your life say, you know what? I'm going to make an image of God and we're going to put it up here in the corner and we are going to approach God in heaven through this image because we know that's what he looked like. We saw him. How many people do something very similar with a cross? Some way they feel just a little closer to God if they can hold a cross. Some way they feel just a little closer to God when they can go to the foot of a cross and pray. Friends, it doesn't matter what image you conjure up in your mind to say to me, this represents my God and I can draw closer to him with this image. I am saying to you that that's what God is saying, do not do. As a matter of fact, skip down this same page. Go down to verse 24 and notice what he says. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire and a jealous God. When you beget children and grandchildren have grown old in the land and act corruptly, and you make carved image in the form of anything, and see, the reason, one reason why he says anything there is he's going back up to the previous verse he read and he's saying, don't even make a carved image like me. He said, I've made sure that I've never shown mankind me because I will not be represented by an image. You know who God is? He said he is, I am. That's who God is. The closest thing we have a description to God is in that same passage in John 4 and 23 and 24, God is a spirit. And that's the closest description we have of God. Tonight, I'd like to remind you that what we worship, think about that word worship, what we love and what just bubbles out of our heart because our love is so great and so we talk about it, we esteem it, we lift it up. What we worship, we are drawn to. People that worship materialism, 
they're drawn to more materialism. People that worship power, they're drawn to more power. People that worship immorality, they're drawn to more immorality. People that worship the Almighty God, they're drawn to God. Isn't that beautiful? Worship God is what the angels said. Don't be drawn to angels. Don't be drawn to images like God. You don't even know what he looks like. Don't be drawn to false things, to earthly things, to temporal things. Be drawn to God. Tonight, is there anything we can help you do to draw to God? To take steps in your life where your heart is truly closer to God than what it's ever been. Tonight, if you've never been baptized into Christ, that's a major move toward God that's wonderful. You literally move from the world and into Christ. What a blessing. If you haven't done that and, and you believe and you're ready to repent and you're ready to submit your life to him and confess of others, you're not ashamed and you want to tell others that Jesus Christ, Son of God, we would love to assist you with that tonight. Maybe along the way you've become a Christian, but... Maybe your heart has started bubbling over about other things and not about God. And, and maybe the study about the greatness of God today, maybe it's been the reminder to refocus. And tonight, if you need to confess sin and pray forgiveness, let's leave here this today, facing this week, drawing near to God, loving God, looking so forward to the next time that we can come back as a church family to pour out that adoration to him together. If we can help you need